When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. To educate and to proselytize this message of the not only the reputational cost, but the financial cost of making a bad decision like that, especially in a publicly traded company. That was Jen Hoare. Jen is a corporate intelligence investigator with Global Ford. In this episode, we take a deep dive into her work as a corporate intelligence specialist and how every executive needs to be thoroughly vetted before corporations hire them and find out the untoward news. I know you'll enjoy this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. We take a deep dive into some recent examples of corporate missteps in this area, and Jen explains the steps she uses to get people to help her perform her job of corporate intelligence. I'm thrilled to have with me Jen Hoare. Jen, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. I'm excited for our discussion. Jen, could you tell us uh, your professional background? Sure. I am a reformed journalist that found this very interesting industry of corporate intelligence and investigations where I get to use a lot of the same skills I really enjoyed as a reporter, which is finding smart people who know stuff and accessing their insight and use an intel- various forms of intelligence about whatever topic, person, company, or combination of the three. And what's your current role? I am a managing director at Forward Risk and Intelligence, now part of the rebranded Forward Global. And in my role, I focus entirely on human intelligence projects. Fancy way of saying that I find and interview aforementioned smart, knowledgeable people about the topics my clients uh, or our clients want to learn about for due diligence, for a transaction. Sometimes it's in a litigation context. But again, the expertise and the passion is very much in this discipline of human intelligence collection and analysis. You mentioned human intelligence a couple of times. Are there other types of intelligence you might use from time to time or not in your position? Very much. In fact, the heritage and foundation of forward risk is in open source intelligence and analysis. 
And what's really neat is that works in concert with human intelligence. And when we've had projects where we're doing both forms of intelligence collection, they inform one another. So you might get a lead from talking to a source, and then I'll go to my colleague who's doing in-depth open source research and say, hey, I got this name from a source. You might want to look into that because it's a it's an avenue that we hadn't pursued yet, or we hadn't found on our own through open source intelligence. And in the other way, with the other way around, sometimes we'll learn something from open source research about an executive's other corporate affiliations that will then direct us to a new batch of sources that we could interview that we didn't realize, oh, this CEO had a company in whatever jurisdiction, let's find some former employees and see if we can talk to them about their experience working with that individual. So could you maybe give us a little bit deeper explanation of corporate intelligence and then tie it to an overall risk management strategy or program a company might utilize? Sure. Corporate intelligence, not to be confused or conflated with corporate espionage, I'm very militant about making that distinction, is about the accessing and eliciting, in my case in the, on the human side, of information to inform clients' decision-making, executive decision-making for the most part, about working with a person, working with a company, partnering, acquiring, transacting, or otherwise. And the connection to risk management is that there's this proactive, preemptive desire to find out what might the red flags and risks be before we engage with this party. And I see that as a very conscientious means to assessing whether a transaction, a partnership, or any kind of other business relationship is a good idea. I'd rather see clients come to us before a deal than after a problem occurs. Of course, there is a lot of fun, I will admit, in the truly investigative process of untangling a problem. And we do see that part of the spectrum as well. But to your question, the risk management part is very much synonymous with doing something in advance before there's a problem. I think in the compliance world, we call that prevention. Amen. Yes. I was I know you talk a lot about FCPA on your on these your various podcasts and I've done a lot of FCPA due diligence work not FCPA investigations once there's an issue and I find that to be I'm always proud of clients that want to do proactive preventative FCPA compliance due diligence fancy way of saying Before I work with this partner overseas, I want to understand their reputation and credentials and what is their track record for integrity in business dealings and in some cases, personal dealings, because that will be a useful prognosticator of what will it be like when I engage with, meaning the client, when I engage with them in a a transaction or a relationship. And I did this a few years ago with an aviation client that wanted to work with and identify a bunch of sales representatives all over the world. And to their credit, they worked very assiduously in advance to see what are the track records of the people they were considering to sell this very expensive business jet they were crafting. So we've had over the years, multiple examples of corporations getting into reputational harm or reputational trouble because of a 
hiring of an executive. And I guess mm -hmm. the most recent one that was also the most dramatic was where a CFO, CFO, a certain company had to leave after one day. Was discovered in his prior <laughs> company, there had been some either issues or at least kerfuffles. Do business executives, do boards understand the cost to them of one of these major missteps? It could be millions of dollars. It could be reputation, but just the cost of not doing the basic services you provide? Tom, you're a great evangelist for this work. What Exactly what you just said is the soapbox I get on all the time, especially on LinkedIn, if you ever see my posts. I, the, our industry is very much on the mission to, to educate and to proselytize this message of the not only the reputational cost, but in many senses, or in some instances, the financial cost of making a bad decision like that, especially in a publicly traded company. And something like the scenario that you described is extremely avoidable. There, there are plenty of other examples of executive malfeasance that was, in some cases, it's a little more hidden, but like in the case of George Santos, for example, who's a politician, those were hiding in plain sight. That some, a lot of those issues affiliated or related to his background would have been discernible through a very uh, straightforward open source research endeavor. And so that gets me worked up about how important it is to take the time and unfortunately spend the money to invest in understanding the background of a person because the hazards that come afterward, especially the, as they say, the headline risk that comes from a, a, an executive, a me any member of the C-suite who leaves after one day, or even if it's longer, when something so egregious emerges later, it's just a, it's a terrible brush to be painted with. I'd like to focus on the human part of human intelligence for a little bit. The first time I was asked to engage in something along these lines uh, in a hiring situation, I thought, gosh, coming out of the legal department, no one will ever say anything other than they worked here and they left. And it turns out that wasn't quite true. And so I come out of the energy industry in Houston, and not that we all know each other, but we all know somebody who knows somebody. So we're all pretty much connected. And so I started calling around, and it turned out his boss was willing to talk to me, his coworkers were willing to talk to me, and everyone was willing, not everyone, but the vast majority were willing to really just sit down and, like we're doing, have a virtual cup of coffee or a cup of coffee and just say, this is what I found about this person. Is that true in your experience or is it something different? Very much. The most common question that people ask me, whether professionally or in a personal coffee chat situation, is how do you get people to talk to you? And my answer is I don't get anyone to do anything. I ask for their help and I ask for their knowledge and expertise. Now, it's really important to mention that in this context, I am extremely, it's extremely important to me personally, ethically, and professionally, ethically, that there is as much disclosure as possible to sources, to understand potential sources, so they can understand what they're participating in. And then that affords the right foundation upon which to build a conversation where there's candor. And of course, there's anonymity and confidentiality extended. And that allows an unvarnished conversation like the ones that you described having to happen. These are not reference calls. And I often tell clients, I would hazard a guess that even 
doing, if I were to do reference calls, I would still have a different conversation than someone who's truly checking the box. Oh, this person is smart. They're a good writer. They show up on time, that kind of thing. I think there's still a more robust, comprehensive conversation to have when you explore a variety of different avenues of inquiry. So I find that people really do want to share what they know and they want to help. And the least that we can do on the corporate investigations intelligence side is give those sources an understanding of the context in which we're calling, how we found them, why we want to talk to them, what we know already, that kind of thing. And then that's what opens and unlocks the, the conversation to more depth. So the, do you have people who will say, don't hire this person? Uh, I've had those conversations. I've mm-hmm. said those things from time mm-hmm. to time. Let me change the focus a little bit because I wanted to ask, did the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic change the need for an inquiry along the lines of, does this person, can this person work well remotely? Sort of all of the facets. Or at that level of senior executive, is that not really something that needs to be explored? That didn't come up as a specific question, but now you've given me an idea, something to consider as I go. Fundamentally, clients want to understand, especially an investor client, when they consider a long-term relationship with an executive or management team, they want to understand what is the person's style like. Now, you're right. That may translate differently in a remote setting, but I think fundamentally clients want to understand what's this person like to work with? How do they communicate? How do they receive feedback? How do they listen? Um, How do they work with other members of the C-suite or manage teams? What is their communication style? Are they authoritarian or collaborative? That I would extrapolate that translates across a hybrid or remote setting. But to take the spirit and sentiment of your question, that is really at the heart of what clients want to understand. And that's where human intelligence is incredibly valuable because you cannot find that in it. Maybe if there's a high profile CEO and there's a Vanity Fair profile of them or Forbes or Fortune profile of them, you could get a flavor of what they're like to work with. But the virtue of working with somebody like me is that I'm doing a bespoke project for a client that can give Give me the questions they want addressed. And if maybe if they've heard something like, we heard that in meetings that he really doesn't pay attention or solicit ideas from other people, can you pursue that and refute or corroborate that? That's the kind of thing that, that really you cannot find in an article or in other types of public records. It's very stylistic and only people that really worked closely with that individual could opine on that. I grew up in the law firm world for 25 years until I went solo and then into the corporate world. My observation in the law firm world was everybody knew everything about everyone. (laughs) We had partners whose nickname was The Letch for good reason. (laughs) And so everybody knew, the female associates knew, don't get in the elevator alone with that guy. That kind of thing. Now it was a different era, and I acknowledge that. But then I got to the corporate world, and it wasn't quite as bad, but it was still everybody knew. Everybody knew who the players were. That's what we called it in the energy space. Everybody knew who the heavy drinkers were. All of that stuff 
either was directly or indirectly known. Is is that been your experience as well? Certainly when I do interviews about an executive, I'm trying to comprehensively and fairly um, and as an independent third party, as robustly as possible, assess the person's reputation. I think it's really important not to rely on rumor and to try to get to the bottom of what may or may not be true. But your question also raises something else that I wanted to bring up, which is the transitive property of reputation checking, meaning when people say, oh, that person's great or that person's bad, but an individual doesn't check that out themselves or meaning a client. So I think the Theranos case showcases this issue pretty well. A couple of high profile board members, advisors come on and each one is validating. Oh yeah, she's great. Oh, okay. I trust my friend Henry Kissinger. So that must be great. But no one was vetting Elizabeth Holmes themselves. And I really do think that it's important that even when there is this kind of hallway hallway file that somebody has, they are owed at least, and also people do change, and I think you and I have talked about this before, they are owed the rigorous independent third-party vetting to corroborate or refute a reputation that may or may not still be the case. Let's stick on the Elizabeth Holmes example for a while, because that one really is fascinating, and maybe expand that to a broader venture capitalist investor context, because in retrospect, every red flag you ever could have wanted to see was available in Theranos, whether it was the Elizabeth Holmes, whether it was the secrecy, whether it was any number of things, uh, her relationship with Sonny Balwani, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you correctly identified having named board members that are stars somewhere else, whose bright lights Lights may shine so brightly they blot everything else out. But how does how do you help a client maybe balance that against the desire to be, oh, it's the next thing? Which I think at the end of the day, that's what Theranos was. It was the next big thing. And people wanted in on the next big thing and they were willing to close their eyes and bet on it. How do you help a how do you counsel a client and that just say do it eyes wide open or you're getting ready to make a big effing mistake? <laughs> I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think you can be really excited about the proposition and promise of a company and its offering and still be discerning about the reputation and backgrounds of the people making those promises. What I advise anybody, and I would argue this would be applicable personally, but that's not what we're here to discuss, is do it soon. Because the more invested, meaning the due diligence, Because the more invested you become and the more swayed you are, the harder it is to turn back when you find bad information. There's a confirmation bias and other biases start to crop up. And then it's harder to see, see, absorb and act upon information that conflicts with what you're already feeling. And I have an instance that I'll refer to in profile and outline, which was a client many years ago who wanted to work with an individual in the Middle East, in a Middle Eastern country. And they started due diligence engaging me and a business partner I was working with at a very late stage in their process of conversation with this person. 
And when open source turned up some potentially problematic stuff and then some interviews I did to corroborate some of the affiliations that were problematic came up at the 11th hour, they were understandably upset because this didn't match what they were so far along in a process that it was such a wrinkle in their plans. And I understand that. I get it. And I've seen that in other instances of my work. And so my advice is do the hard work of identifying difficult information. If it is even there, it may not be before you're emotionally, financially, and reputationally invested in the deal and in the management team. I'm a huge consumer of sports podcasts. And this morning... We have a third guest, canine guest. (laughs) And this morning, one of the podcasts I was listening to, the discussion was about a former number one draft pick who is now 23. And the observation was, people show you who they are. And this person typically is out of shape and is typically not a leader on the team. And I thought, one, that was very prescient given I was going to visit with you today to ask you, one, do people really show you who they are? Mm. But two, my thought was, he's 23. I shudder to think what I was like at 23. (laughs) That's why I don't think about it very often. But I probably was not the best version of myself. Mm. So do we take the tact that people show you who they are, and if you're going to invest a very large something with them, in this case it was a multi-million dollar contract, you, how do you take that into account? Or two, if you work with someone, can you help them overcome what might be current deficiencies? Yeah. Fundamentally, this comes down to do people change? Uh, I like the phrasing that you use, do they show you who they are? And it reminds me of a somewhat cheesy cl- quote, which is when people tell you who they are, listen, and when they show you who they are, believe them. But I don't think we're monoliths or static creatures. I think we're all dynamic. Now, in the case that you just, in the the scenario you just mentioned of a 23-year-old with a multi-million dollar contract, there's a lot of money on the line. And it's it's also, I don't know a lot about sports, but it's very high profile, I'm guessing, this contract and this player. So there's a lot on the line for the team, for the owners, for the league. So you have to take that, in that case, take that player who he is for right now and not hope for the potential change that could redeem that very expensive contract. So I think that's a very specific case because it's someone who's so young, although there's an interesting comparison to Silicon Valley, where you have founders who are in their 20s with no prior employment record and and VCs are making the same kinds of bets. I would say, yes, I do believe people change as a person and as a as a professional who's watched the progression of people's careers. I do believe people change. But when it comes to making an investment, you can't bet on maybe this person will have self-reflection and have a comeuppance that will cause them to change the way that they're doing things and treating people. You have to bet on who they are right now and what they've shown themselves to be thus far. I think my answer is when it comes to an investment where you're putting money down, it has to be on the predicate that's been laid. But I do believe that people change and could improve, especially if 
provide them with resources and coaching and support, and maybe even the caveat that they need to change. I, I've seen this in, when I look at a CEO, let's say, who's 20, 30 years into his or her career, and I interview sources from a variety of chapters from the past, sometimes you do see that progression. And that's why I think it is very valuable not just to talk to people that just worked with the person recently, although, yes, you could argue that's the most current information, but it's also very illuminating to see, oh, wow, when that CEO started out as in middle, manage, middle management, she was very territorial or fill in the blank or not collaborative. And then now in more recent information, she's incredibly collaborative and teamwork oriented that seeing that progression is actually even more positive because it shows that person developed and grew as an executive. So early on in this podcast, I asked or talked about the corporate intelligence as a component of an overall risk management strategy. And I was really trying to set up this next series of questions, which is if viewed as a part of a risk management strategy, could a company take the information that you and your team are able to develop and actually develop a strategy to to help either remediate the individual, educate the individual, as you suggest, perhaps even tell them you're going to have to take certain steps. But could it be, if we looked at it as risk and then as a strategy to manage that risk, could an education component be overlaid? Could a personal coach component be overlaid? Could a second set of eyes watching them the overlay could a variety of strategies be used if there is talent that's seen that is warrants an investment, but there are either caveats, red flags, or something that you might identify to your client. In an ideal situation, the intelligence gathered informs concrete steps that manage risk, whether that's to say no go on this relationship. It doesn't make sense to proceed. Thank God we did this research in advance so that before we were too involved or the other route that you just described, which is whether maybe the client is already working with somebody and that information can be used for to positive end, that there's nuance to the findings to say, this is a solid professional. Here are some areas for improvement. And I may not have mentioned this when we last spoke, but I had a really rewarding client experience born of human intelligence work I did for them where I was doing due diligence on a CEO and the client came to me and said, we think there's this problem in this one area. Can you look into it? And I said, sure, I'm going to look into that, but I'm going to have a fulsome conversation with sources about other things too, just to get a whole try to get a whole portrait of the person. And what emerged was, oh, this executive actually has some interpersonal areas of potential improvement, let's say. And then that inf- the reaction from the client was, oh, that's really interesting. We didn't know that. That helps us now determine exactly what we're going to do going forward working with him. And I found that to be a very rewarding process because I saw exactly what you described, that spectrum of activities of I talked to people, got a whole picture of the person, found things that were unexpected, and that then shaped how this client worked with that executive, hopefully to good effect. Jen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, 
or any of the topics we've touched on, what would be the best place or places for them to go? Sure. Thanks for asking. You can check out the website of my firm, forwardrisk.com. I'm also on LinkedIn as Jen Hoar. And that's about it. And I'm happy to connect with anybody and further discuss any of the things you've raised, Tom. This was a really engaging conversation. I like the scenarios you present and thanks for having me. Jen, thanks for reaching out and I look forward to continuing this conversation. Likewise. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. I'd like to tell you about two great new podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, Adventures in Compliance, where I look at the intersection of Sherlock Holmes, leadership, compliance, and business ethics. I'm doing all of the Sherlock Holmes stories as well as the novels. Another is Report from ECI 2023, where I interviewed speakers, guests, and participants at ECI 2023. I know you'll enjoy both of these new podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.